Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crip, the crowdfunding podcast. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, February 10th, 2014. During this week in history, 50 years ago, the Beatles invaded America on the Ed Sullivan Show. It's estimated that over 73 million Americans were tuning in when Ed Sullivan said, Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Close your eyes and I'll kiss you I started a hobby company over 10 years ago called the Berkshire Puzzle Company. My mission was to create the highest quality wooden jigsaw puzzle I could make. And I achieved that mission, but over those 10 plus years, I realized there was a great demand for the same high quality puzzles, but at mainstream prices. How's it going, Will? How's it going, man? How you doing? That was the coolest thing about your video, man. It was like a whole history lesson. The wooden jigsaw puzzle actually has a very, very rich history. It started in 1760 as you could tell from the Kickstarter video and the text in the Kickstarter. And by 1900, it had become a very popular form of entertainment for adults in both Europe and the United States. A lot of people started joining into that market. By 1908, really, there were some companies that jumped in on board with creating wooden jigsaw puzzles. But it wasn't until the 1930s that cardboard puzzles became very popular and helped fuel the jigsaw puzzle boom which was a craze, like an incredible fad. Wow. And you know, everyone's losing their jobs and they're losing their houses and they can't eat and they're you know, trying to uh, provide for their families and hold their families together and everything's falling apart and they're in food lines and you know, these cardboard puzzles come out and some of them were called weeklies. They'd come out every week and they were very, very affordable. And also a lot of people started making wooden jigsaw puzzles. They'd lost their jobs and they just figured out ways to start making these and jump on board with it as well. And those were less expensive also, more than the cardboard ones. But So people would buy these wooden jigsaw puzzles instead of you know going to the movies or going out and doing something they might normally do for entertainment because they had no money. And they would do them around the dining room table or the kitchen table or the living room table. And it held these families together you know, while they were you know, starving and freaking out, trying to figure out how to get by. And right. so it's part of the rich history that it held people together. Now, how does that translate to you on Kickstarter, though? Because I know, well, I'm, I can't say I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm believing that your high-quality wooden puzzles, you're making them probably more affordable for, like, regular people trying to get a bigger market on them. So how does it relate to the, your Kickstarter? All right, I guess I should say that the first puzzle I made when I was, like, 12. Right. And it was the worst puzzle you can imagine. <laughs> And then I started making puzzles by the time I was 30 and uh, turned out I had a, a, a real talent for it. Right. So and you practiced from 12 to 30? It took you that no, long? No, no, no. I didn't say I practiced from 12 to 30. <laughs> I said I made a puzzle when I was 12. Because <laughs> no, I started radio when I was 12, but I, I, practiced, I practiced that whole time. I practiced a lot of things since I was 12, but that wasn't, wasn't one of them. But it, okay. But by the time I was 30, I was doing it. And, um Right. So I started this wooden jigsaw puzzle company, the Berkshire Puzzle Company, right. and started selling to private clients mostly. But the thing is, they were very expensive. It take, it's very, very labor intensive, and right. there's no real way to do that 
I mean, there wasn't a way to do that and, and have it be, them be affordably priced. So it cut out, you know, the majority of the world right. from being able to enjoy the, the puzzles. So I started thinking about how to produce the same high-quality puzzles but at affordable prices and spent years thinking about it. And then I uh, spent the past two years uh, developing this business that will produce basically the same high-quality wooden jigsaw puzzles but at about 5%, sometimes 2% of the um, typical high-end wooden jigsaw puzzle price. How'd you do it? Lasers? What? I use a laser to cut them, but the proprietary technology that I developed is kind of, uh, part of it is is an accessory to the laser and a production method using the laser that essentially makes the hand-designed puzzles emulate the look of being hand-cut. So when right. you look at the image on the top, I can't tell the difference between that and my hand-cut uh, puzzles uh, looking at the image. Some of the main factors of puzzles, and, and I'm not talking about high-end puzzles because I know nothing about that, but uh, like when my children go for puzzles, they ask 400-piece, 1,000-piece, 100-piece. I mean, how many pieces would the average puzzle be? My small, which is uh, almost, it's about eight, inch, eight inches by eight inches. That's 150 pieces. Right. A large is 12 by 12, and that's, or just shy of it, and that's 330 pieces. And an extra large is 16 by 16, and that's 600 pieces. And we planned okay. it into, well, I guess I can say this. It will probably have uh, seasonal offerings of double extra large and possibly even triple extra large puzzles it would be 20 by 20 and 24 wow. by 24 so offhand i don't know how many pieces that is but um it's big i can tell you that a, an extra large is four times <laughs> the size of a of a small so right. a 24 by 24 I, it's big yeah sounds like we're talking about pizzas but i got you all yeah. right so <laughs> we're talking about the size the, the pieces what else when you think about puzzles you think you told me about the prints some of them are like these great art paintings and so that sounds totally cool these puzzles are designed to last for generations they get passed from generation to generation to generation and collected and essentially most people in the premium wooden jigsaw double market have a part of a closet or maybe an entire closet that they dedicate to their puzzle collection and you put it in there and one of the things that we did that sort of extends the, the part I was talking about from the Great Depression where it held families together during the decade of strife right. is that every time we did a puzzle, we would sign the back of the box. Right. And everyone who did it, we would date it and sign it. So everyone who, everyone who did it, say that we had people over for the, you know, the weekend or it was a birthday party or you know, friends and family were there or whatever, everyone right. signed it. And after 30 years, you look back at that puzzle and you remember all these great times you had with all these people. So the puzzle not only brings us together to do the puzzle, but it keeps us together over time, even when we're apart. So like the Great Depression, it holds us together and gives us a sense of community. Now for anyone out there, my whole family loves puzzles. My children loves puzzles. I guess that's redundant since I said my whole family. But I have a bunch of puzzle addicts at my house. And <laughs> these puzzles would go beautifully with them and man it'd be so cool to be able to sign the back of the puzzle and have people who come over come over and do such things man that that is just i mean it just sounds like the nature of family so for anyone out there go to kickstarter.com and check out zen puzzles that's z-e-n puzzles and if you can't find it there 
always go to djgrandpa.com if you get lost and we'll point you in the right direction and we'll have links for Will and his company, man. I wish you the best and thank you very much for sharing such a beautiful family-oriented story, man. Very warm, very warm. Thank you, DJ. You did it totally correct. Alright, first impressions about your game, Darklands by Mingle Games out of Prague. You know, I love Prague. Never been there. You know why I love it? Why? Because it's in so many American movies. Oh yeah, it's very popular. Because, you know, they use it to actually film scenes that uh, should be in Paris, etc. Because in uh, Prague we have kind of a lot of prices for filming. So they use the, uh, our city to film all these old town things. Now, about your game, Dark Lands, my first impressions, first impressions. And first impressions, they say, are always very important. And what I thought or what I think is, I love the sound effects most of all. You know, I love the battles, but I love the sound effects with the monsters and the ghouls and stuff going up against the champion. It kind of reminds me of Land of the Lost, like the sleet stack and stuff. It's like, ah, ah, you know, and, it, you know, it's all these kind of crazy beastie type sounds. I thought that was way cool. And the whole kind of barb things you have where the hero can, I guess if you're talented enough, you can jump over the barbs or slide under. But if not, you just get ripped to pieces sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually very reaction-based, but, uh, you know, we didn't want to just make some runner with battle system. For us, it's very important to bring audiovisual atmosphere, you know, strong atmosphere. And uh, we're trying to be this kind of a horror style with a fantasy theme. I believe we actually achieve it. Now, why don't you tell me, in your opinion, what the game actually is? We call it battle runner because that's what it is, you know. <laughs> okay. But uh, I would say that, like it's a kind of an experimental project because we, there are lots of these games there. You are just infinitely running and trying to get somewhere, and uh, just like Temple Run and other running games. But uh, we didn't want to go that way. We actually always in every game we do, we try to make some evolution you know you use use some uh, proven concept and mix it to get something unique to get some gaming experience that is memorable and new i call it battle runner just because it is and what we want to achieve in this game is that people have a long-term entertainment not just for a few sessions right that's important for us to not just play once twice finish the story and never return for us, is we want to keep people entertained for long term. So that, that's why we are bringing more stuff. Not only there, we are going to produce uh, level-based challenges, right. but also most important multiplayer. People are going to actually race against each other. This is the important part for us. When you can get a player and another player, and they need to get first to the finish, but they can actually hit each other. They can actually <laughs> right. start, uh, you know activate traps that 
wasn't activated before. So you try to slow down your opposite players, but you need to as much as fluently run through all the traps and enemies. Did I see a minotaur or something in this game? We kind of come from lots of Greek mythology, but we are not only focusing on mythology creatures. There are lots of different kind of monsters, usually fantasy, classic fantasy and horror monsters. But Minotaur is there. I usually ask gamers this year, I put them on the spot by asking them what makes this game fun. Do you have an answer? Yeah, sure. I think uh, dynamics of the game, it's uh, very fun. It always keeps you on the edge, you know, and you really need to, it's reaction-based, so you really, really need to be careful to do everything right. And if you mess up, it's going to be very bloody mess in everything. You're just going to fly around, you know. Right. You know, you have a quest, you need to do something in the game, not just run and beat them. You actually, uh, you will be racing against the time, you will be needed to kill every enemy or to go level by not getting too much hit. So there's lots of different kind of ways that you will need to play to actually get all rewards. And also this multiplayer when you are racing against each other, that's going to be really fun because it's nothing better than beat your friend, right? I'd love to beat my friend. That would be cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the game, not for you. <laughs> well, I, I, I did not want to specify. Why did you become a gamer in the first place? I don't think I've ever asked anyone that question. I was born that way. I remember myself playing games from very, you know, there was uh, these amusement parks uh, that were traveling around. Right. And I, I didn't have like computers back then, you know. There was uh, like this arcade games uh, when you, you know, put coins inside and play. Whenever they came, I just went there and all the time I was playing, I was fascinated. I don't know how why, just I was. So from that point, I was just playing game uh, and watching movies. And uh, usually I'm very into, you know, entertainment business, but uh, this took all my interest, gaming business. So I kept on playing, playing, playing. And when I was deciding what to study, I, I knew I want to make games, you know? Yeah. So if I want to actually, you know, have a happy life, I should do something that I love to do. And I started. I... And for anyone out there on Kickstarter, check out Dark Lands. I know he says it's Battle Run, but I see it on the Kickstarter screen as Dark Lands. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where we will have links for Vladislav and his company Mingle Games. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Up next, Alex Schwartzman with an anthology of funny science fiction and fantasy stories. We're here to talk about you and unidentified funny objects. Not two, not one, but three. The annual anthology of horror, science fiction, and fantasy. I guess that's what the SFF stands for. I always forget that part at the end. <laughs> well, it's humor, science fiction, and fantasy. Oh, it's a okay. very, very radically different. Oh, I said that. horror. Yes. I yeah. <laughs> That's actually part of the reason why I created this anthology series is that there are a lot of horror anthologies and there are a lot of dark fiction and sort of gloomy, sad, That's true. Uh, you know, stories that rely on pulling on your, on your heartstrings. There's a lot of people who enjoy reading that stuff, but there's also a lot of people who enjoy reading funny. Right. And there aren't nearly as many outlets. There's not nearly as many venues that purchase those kind of stories and publish them. 
Is this becoming like your beat, this whole humor and sci-fi fantasy thing? I write a lot of the stuff. A lot of my humorous stories have been published right. in some really great venues. And so I love writing the stuff. And when I have to submit it out to markets, I look at the list of the Science Fiction Writers of America approved venues, and very, very few of them are interested in this kind of story. So I write the stuff because I like to read it. And so I wanted to provide another venue, both for the readers who enjoy those kind of stories, to have something that they can pick up on an annual basis, something that they can look forward to and, you know, get a copy of every year, but also for the writers to have a place where they can submit these kind of stories and give them a reason to write, uh, you know, humorous, light, fun stories, you know, that are a little strange and a little unidentifiable. My producer tells me that you're becoming more acclaimed as time goes on. Your unidentified funny objects, you know, like one and two, they're they're getting in what Barnes and Nobles or something like that. And it's very unusual for Barnes and Noble to pick up books that are independently published like that for their physical stores. You know, they'll carry them on their website, just like Amazon does. But very, very few of them make it to the stores. And what they require you to do is you actually have to mail in a sample copy and they review the book. And, you know, they're tough. Now, they accepted both UFO 1 and UFO 2 for placement in stores. Uh, UFO 1 is available nationwide right now. I keep getting people sending me photos from their Barnes & Noble store from places like Texas and New Hampshire and all over the place. So the book is selling. They've ordered and they've reordered. And just a little over a week ago, I got a letter from them confirming that they've now accepted UFO 2 as well, and they will be placing an order in the coming few weeks. Now, is this a big feather in your cap? For me, when I started doing this, there was a lot of doubt because I've never edited an anthology before. I've never been a publisher before. All I had is the experience of being a writer and knowing what it feels like to deal with publication venues right. from that perspective and the experience of being a reader and knowing what I like in the book. So I tried to create a product that I would really enjoy as a reader. I wanted to make sure that the cover art is of sufficient quality, that it doesn't look like a book that's being put out by a small publisher. It looks really professional. Uh, Both cover art and the interior of the book are designed by people who have many years' experience in the industry and do this kind of work for major publishers. So that costs money, but it makes a superior product. Right. Now, the content, of course, that's the tricky part because, again, a first-time editor, so I didn't have a lot of experience, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I was fortunate in that uh, several really well-known writers came on board early, most notably Mike Resnick. You know, he agreed to be in the book very early on, so that landed you know, a lot of credit to the project because a lot of the younger, newer writers would really like to be in the same book with Mike. You know, so and a couple of other people like Jody Lynn Nye came on board pretty early and you know a couple of other headliners joined the project Ken Lu. Right. And so others, when they saw the combination of several really good names attached to the book, the fact that we're paying professional rates and the fact that the submissions are being responded to extremely fast. Because in the publishing industry most submissions, you know, people take months upon months to get an answer to their story. So We tend to respond to everything in well under a week. The only time that we don't give you an answer within a week 
And when I say we, it's me and a team of associate editors that help me out with this. Right. And the only times we don't give you an answer within a week is if we are seriously considering your story. It's made it past the first or second reading. Okay, well, that cuts down the wait a bit. Yeah, within a week. Sorry, I was going to say so that, you know, the, the, the part of the process is where we read submissions blind, too. So See, you, you uh, stole when, my question. That's what, that was my question. Well, there you go. I, this, I didn't steal it. I anticipated it. Oh, yeah, my fault. Sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially what that does is it does two things. First of all, I don't want any doubt from anyone that, uh, you know, somebody donates money to us on Kickstarter or doesn't, so that's going to affect their chances of being in the book. Right. You know, that first and foremost. I've seen discussions of other projects on various places on the internet, and that's something that's popped up one than once. You know, that's not something that we would ever take into consideration when reading submissions. But just to be sure, that and also the fact that I don't want somebody's publication history to bias my reader. So when my associate editors receive the story from me, they have no idea if that story was written by a Nebula winner or by somebody who's never been published anywhere. For anyone out there, remember, Unidentified Funny Objects. Number three, it's an annual anthology of humor. I almost said horror, but I mean humor. It's not dystopic. It keeps the funny. Science Fiction and Fantasy by Alex Schwarzman. And if you can't find it there on Kickstarter, always go to djgrandpa.com where we try and keep the funny in everything as much as possible. Alex, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib. It's been a while. I hear you've been around the world. You're always traveling, and I've seen videos from you. I've heard yeah, music from yeah. you. I've talked to your publicist, Nancy, and I talked to the other lady. I can never remember her name, but she seems very nice who's with your camp. Uh, your manager. Your manager. Yes, Terry. Yeah, yeah, Terry. She's a very nice lady, man. So I've gotten to know your peoples a little bit, man, through you. Cool. Nancy's my favorite publicist in the world, so... She's great. Thank you. <laughs> now, you have something coming up that you wanted to talk about, so... I do, I do. I've got a... you got to um, spill the beans, man. <laughs> i got a benefit for this really cool group of people called Hungry for Music, and they created this organization. It's based, actually, in Washington, D.C. They've right. donated over 7,000 instruments... To organizations and children, and what they and like after school programs, and what what it is is it's basically getting musical instruments into the hands of underserved children right. and teachers. So they're not just you know giving out instruments, but they're making sure that they can actually get some training with it. And I love it. I donated five guitars to them. Uh, I guess it was last February, and they stayed in touch with me. And I said, you know, if I can help you later down the line, they said, well, you can do a benefit. And I was like, yeah, we can make that happen. So, actually, uh, it's happening in Baltimore on February fifteenth. We're okay. gonna um, meet my band, Disappear Fear. We're the featured act, but there's other acts on the bill as well, right. mostly from this area, but also from abroad. And they are Naked Blue. Beggar's Ride, those are each acoustic duos, and Michael Reitzik, who's a really awesome jazz guitarist, okay. and then a couple of my band members, 
Don Conocente and Isak Tabor. Isak's coming over to join my band. He's a bass player and a musician, I mean, and a songwriter from Ireland by way of Amsterdam. <laughs> and so they're going to do some songs too. So it's going to be just a really nice come to night, good acoustic music. If you got an instrument and you want to bring one, that would be great. And it's a bit something in Baltimore. That's how I got my first instrument. I was quote unquote an underprivileged kid in Bridgeport, Connecticut when I, I was a young man, young man. Before I started, it was before, let me see. It was before 12, because I started radio when I was 12. So it was before I was age 12, and it was for the Music Foundation for the Visually Handicapped in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And that's where I got my first instrument, it was a trumpet. And wow. I had a trumpet teacher, and he taught me all this stuff, and you know, we played in a jazz band and stuff, and it was totally cool, man. That was like my first introduction to music. So I'd like to believe I understand what you're talking about. Baltimore that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I think that's awesome. I started a nonprofit myself. I had done a performance in Palestine and in a Palestinian village. And the girls wanted to keep my guitar when I finished the performance because they wanted to learn to play. Hey, that's and, greedy. Um, <laughs> and I said, I can't give you this guitar, but I promise <laughs> I'll send you one. <laughs> you know, well, that you know. And so, um, so I did. And I was just like, well, if they wanted guitars, there are probably a lot of kids that can't get them who want right. them because they're cool and they're just, you know. And so I've done some training with that with Boys and Girls Club of Central Texas right. over the summers I've taught down there, and I just. I love it. I, the expression on their face when you when they you know you put their fingers sort of in the right place, the neck of the guitar and, and their other hand strums and the expression is just like whoa, what could I can do? <laughs> you know, it's just awesome. So it's music, such a perfect thing. <laughs> Have you written any killer new songs, man? Because it's been a while. It has been, and I was just so into the the momentum of, of the tour and right. just getting all the arrangements down and bringing back some old stuff, which is actually kind of still where it's at. What I've been doing, though, is I've been just revisiting a whole lot of Beatles songs lately, oh, um, just trying them on, seeing how it fits, seeing if, what, if we can fly with some of that stuff. I'm just kind of just sort of in that zone. Okay, now one last time, because you know... <laughs> You know that I have problems with dates at times, so one last time. When is this show? This show is coming up a week from Saturday. It right. is it's Saturday, February 15th. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. February 15th in Baltimore at the First Christian Church. It's 5802 Roland Avenue. 21209 is the zip. People can get information about it at www.disappearfear.com. And the show features my band, Disappear Fear, and me, Sonia. And we have other guest artists, Naked Blue, Beggars Rise, Michael Reitzik, Isak Tabor, and Don Conocente. And we're all going to be playing to raise money for Hungry for Music, a nonprofit organization that brings musical instruments to children around the world and teachers. Sonia, thank you very much. Thank you, DJ. I'm sending you love. Thank you. You too. Remember, we are the crowdfunding channel, and we cover the globe. Welcome to Underwear, an epic story of heroes and villains and the underwear that they wear. It all started with one simple joke. What's that under there? Underwear. Just made you say underwear. How's it going, dude? Hey, that joke was, was it Whip and 
<laughs> it's a Whip Wilson Jr. and Tulip Tops. Oh, man, Tulip Tops. I'm loving this, man. Any potty jokes come along with this one? You know, I think I'm going to dabble a little bit, but I like the basic underwear joke. I think that's uh, tried and true. That is the hallmark, as we would say. Yes. Okay, for anyone who's just tuned in, okay, we're talking about all sorts of weird stuff. So it's not like you've just entered a locker room or anything. You've entered DJ Grandpa's crib. And I want to welcome Manny to the crib. May I call you Manny? Of course. And you have on Kickstarter right about now. It's called Underwear. Mm -hmm. Question mark. Underwear. Just made you say what, Manny? Underwear. That's right, man. I, what is this, from Fish Tank Comics? Yep, that's my publishing company. You know how to market, man, uniquely, I would say. I'm trying. And it's not as though I give out compliments every week on this show, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Manny, why don't you tell me, why don't you tell us, why don't you let people know what is Underwear, the comic book about the series? It's about an entire world called Jewel City. And in that world, there are heroes and villains aplenty. There's tons and tons and tons of them. And within that world, the primary thing that divides heroes and villains is wearing your underwear over or under your tights. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even the villains will get some cred from heroes if they're both underwear over people or underwear under people. They'll still go to jail, but... They'll get a little bit more credit. And you've actually thought to try and make a profit off of this sort of thing. <laughs> off of underwear, yes. I mean, people have made a profit off of underwear for years. I, I just didn't know they Correct. would make a profit off of writing about it or serializing it. I searched and looked for other comics that dealt with this, and I couldn't find any <laughs> for some reason. What do you mean you searched? There are no other comics that would deal with this. I can tell you that off the top. <laughs> For whatever reason, nobody wants to touch the topic of superhero underwear. I'm not sure. I'm looking at your pictures right now on Kickstarter because you have a lot of them. But yes. I can't tell if people are wearing their underwear outside or in, if they're innies or outies. I, I can't tell on this. Well, Lady Laser, she wears a dress, so her underwear is underneath because that would just look weird if her underwear was over the dress. She would be a little more popular if it were if she didn't, <laughs> <laughs> if she didn't have the dress. The two primary families, Whip Wilson Sr. and then there's Turner Tops. Those are the two heads of families in this world. You could compare it to Romeo and Juliet a little bit, where you got the Montagues and Capulets, you got the underwear overs and unders. They're right. divided. Oh, like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Correct. I see you have a robot. How would you deal with that? Well. You see, he does technically have kind of underwear. He's got like an outer shell. Right. So he would probably classify himself as the underwear wearing over the top. Well, he's a villain, so he doesn't care what you think. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Villains don't have any friends. That's right. No, nah, try bodies. Three flavors of evil. Yeah, they're like terrorists. Terrorists have no <laughs> friends. Okay. Of course, of course. Okay. I think for something like this, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who would wear their underwear on the outside and those who would wear their underwear, um, hmm, shall we say the proper way, you know? Uh, <laughs> you I know. would agree. I would agree. Right. I think there's only two types of people in the world. So uh -huh. you must divide and conquer a lot of households, a lot of people. Or like if you had an audience at a conference and you asked people to raise their hands, I, I think you would probably get... You know, you could separate the room that way. It's interesting, actually. A lot of superhero fans prefer their heroes to have their underwear over the tights. I'm uh, mm. intrigued by that. You got any more? 
information like that? Anything else I should know about? I mean, seriously, I never knew this. <laughs> Actually, I was told by my coworker that uh, the origination of the underwear over the tights was based on Superman, which was a visual offshoot of circus performers who often wore tights and they wore kind of a, a leotard of sorts or underwear over their tights to kind of delineate what they would do. And they would work on the trapeze and the high wire. And so uh, I've done zero research myself on that topic, but I'll take his word for it. Your coworker sounds very learned, man. Very learned. He is. If, he's like the smartest guy in the room, right? He's uh, the smartest comic book guy in the room for sure. You're madly creative with these drawings, man. I mean, you got something that looks almost like a cloak and a spider half mixed together with a top hat near the bottom of your page. Yes. Who's that character? His name is Terribly Mysterious. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> if you didn't know, he's mysterious. and It's hard to know what he's all about. Wow. Due to his mysteriousness. Yeah, that would make a killer shirt, man. Terribly mysterious. You and, and you got the names. Tell me some more names, man. Keep rattling <laughs> them off, man. Give me a hit list. We got uh, one of the villains is Sweet Tooth. Yeah. We have the Commando, who right. doesn't take sides in the war on underwear. I see a horned one. That guy has to be evil. That's the Bulldozer and the Wrecking Ball. Evil? Yep, evil. Okay. And then there's the Invisible Arrow. And the invisible arrow shoots invisible arrows. I like him. He looks cool. He buys his invisible arrows from an invisible item catalog. Yeah, you're just into the whole farcical now. <laughs> Part of the reason I made this book and making this book is I love the old Batman live action series from the 60s. And I love the Batman animated series that was in the 90s. Right. And I just I love the goofy, genuine comics um that's not goofy man batman from the 60s man i, I think you're crossing the line there <laughs> it's a respect issue man i still watch that <laughs> i love it it's great i love the fact that villains can build giant traps based around the most absurd things and put heroes in them and then walk away i like how they do whomever is the voice of and next week We'll find out if Batman and Robin get out of the strange XYZ sort of... Yep. I mean, I love that guy. I wish, I wish I could do something like that, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So we got other characters, the Swashbuckler. He's a villain. We have Captain Commodore. He's a hero. He's kind of like the British Captain America. Now, how long did it take you to think of all this stuff? Because you obviously have a lot of time on your hands. Or you're a very fast thinker. I've been developing the characters for about a month. Get out of here, man. Come on, man. This is a real show, man. You don't expect me to believe you, you did this for about a month. The two main characters, Whip Wilson Jr. and Tulip Tops, I drew the first pages for that last summer. And then over the last month, I've been trying to design a character a day throughout January. Yeah. And so all of like the kind of bluish ink drawings with all the, you know, Scorcha and Ninjutsu and the white gloves... Those were all done over lunch. I did one a day over lunch. I'm sorry, I didn't believe you, man. I mistook <laughs> your, I mean, I questioned your virtue, man. That's not cool at all. It's okay. My coworkers give me a hard time because I'll, I'll design a lot of characters over lunch. And I used to draw comic pages over lunch. Do you work for an ad agency or anything like that? I'm a graphic designer by day. Oh, by that's, day. And yes. by, <laughs> by, I mean, that's all you do. I do graphic design during the day, and at lunchtime I make comics, and then I make comics at night after the kids go to bed. 
And last but not least, I'd like to say for anyone on Kickstarter, let's see, for anyone on Kickstarter, underwear, question mark, U-N-D-E-R-W-H-E-R-E. Just made you say underwear, didn't I? DJ Grandpa and Manny. Yep. And if you can't find farcical material like this anywhere else, satirical material like this anywhere else, comic books that make you laugh and maybe aren't too mean about what they say these days and not kill off their superheroes, you can go to djgrandpa.com and trust that we'll never do that. I don't really believe in that. And we'll post links for Manny and uh, Fish Tank Comics, man. Had a great time, man. Thanks for coming on the crib. Thank you. Some of the most feared and battle-hardened armies the world has ever known have been those of the cities of ancient Greece. In Nika, you command one of these great hoplite armies, using the tactic of Othysmos to push and rout enemy forces. Nika is the ancient Greek word for conquer, and in the game, you and your ally will work together to conquer territory over your enemies. I say Rick Suet is above board. And I mean that in every aspect, and I'm not trying to be punny even though I'm accused of it. Welcome to the crib, man. I'm happy to have you back. Thank you so much. This is one of the pleasures for me to be able to do this, and uh, very enjoyable. You have some news. It's true. We have two Kickstarter projects going on right now, one under Eagle and one under Griffin. Right. The one under Eagle is called Nika, N-I-K-A, and it's a game by a... Columbia graduate, just graduated last year from Columbia, oh, cool. and he is now doing a master's degree, and I believe he's in his first year of the master's degree, but the program is in its second year overall, to my knowledge, which is limited, but nonetheless, it's the only such master's degree in the country, and it's a master's degree in game design. That's way cool. And what it tells us, too, is that our society is migrating more toward embracing games as a form of leisure activity. And games involve a lot of things that I think societies eventually get to a point where there's an emphasis on poetry and the arts and the fine arts. And maybe we're headed to such a time, if we don't self-destruct between now and then, yeah, uh, where games really combines a lot of stuff. It combines the leisure time activity with something that is mindful and requires some thought, and it uh, takes into account art. And surely the five games that we now have on Kickstarter, six if you include Nika, right. are all very art-oriented games. The second project is called Games of Art. I need a bullet point of the names of those games. Nika is a game about Greek warfare, and it's a strategy game. It's a war game on a beautiful board, and it has to do with how phalanxes were used by Greek armies to move. You represent one of four cities, and you have the same composition of six pieces, not a lot of pieces. The board looks like a great big checkerboard, and you are pushing around the board as phalanxes did in Greek warfare. You've got real narrow valleys, and they pushed a lot and shoved a lot with their helmets and their spears and their shields. I like the video, actually, on this one. Yeah, the way it was good. done, but now you have a potpourri Kickstarter that just has, like, 
several games in it. The bullet point list is simply that you've got games of art itself, which you and I have talked about Sid Saxon before, sort of the dean of American gaming, an engineer who retired from engineering in the 60s and devoted the rest of his life, he lived until 2002, to being a games designer. That was very unusual, still is very unusual, that program that... Josh Robb is in, who's the designer of Nika. Very unusual. First time. But Sid Saxon, going back to the 60s, started designing games for a living. And one of the things he did back in the mid-70s was a book of games that he called at the time Beyond Tic-Tac-Toe. I don't have any idea why he called it Beyond Tic-Tac-Toe, but that's what he did. We've got modern artists in this book. We've got seven different modern artists, some of whom have become well-known. People like Piet Mondrian, and Paul Clay, for instance, have right, become right. quite well-known. But there are seven different artists represented in this book, and you each, as a player, you grab a colored dry erase marker, and each player has a different color, and the rules to each game appear on one page, and the diagram for it appears on the next page. All four players are playing simultaneously, and according to a different set of rules in the case of each game, obviously. At the end, you have both played a game and you've created a modern-day masterpiece that you may want to hang on your wall. And essentially, you've done it according to game rules, but you've ended up with a painting that's reminiscent of the style of the author that's involved in the game. That's the bullet point for that one. What's the second one? The second one is a re printing of a game called Pastiche that I know you're familiar with. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's already a family favorite. Well, that's great. So maybe you want to describe this one. I can't <laughs> describe it, man. I can bring a kid in and they can describe it. They've played that game for hours, man. They've taken days to play that game. It's a very cool game. It's a game I had a lot more participation in, the more the development than the design. But we use commissions, which we call commissions, but they're actually paintings done throughout a six-century period of time by 23 different artists in this case. And uh, we have those little easels too, right? What's that? We have those little easels in that game. Yes, we have little easels, and you put your paintings on these easels, and you're trying to get the colors that the artist used in those paintings. And once you get those colors, which are represented on little cards, then you can recreate the palette that the master painter used. And that's the idea. The more, I think the satisfaction in the game is the interaction between the players. There actually ends up being a lot of cooperation. It's not part of the game, but it becomes the way the game is played many, many times. Very social game. And uh, you're learning about the arts. You're learning about how to mix colors. You're learning about a little bit about the artists and what went, what went into making those paintings. So okay. we love the game. We think it's a great game. And this is the reduced version. I know you have the original version, right. which we still have. And this one has fewer pieces of art. It has fewer uh, pieces in general. But right. what it does have is the same flavor, the same gameplay, and a lower price tag that we hope will get a lot more people interested in buying and playing the game. Now, game number three that's in the games of art is a game called Fantastica. And again, this is a new edition of Fantastica. This one's called the Rucksack Edition. And Fantastica in general is created, the designer is Alf Siegert, who's a professor of fantasy literature at the University of uh, Utah. So this is a game that comes right out of his teaching experiences and uh, literary background. But 
it's that sounds maybe too highbrow or something like that. This game is really written for families. It's written for uh, maybe a slightly older kid, as in maybe starting at age seven, eight, nine on up. And you are involved right from the beginning in a fantasy quest. You have various quests that you go on in this game. You have to subdue. No one was killed or harmed in the making of this game. You subdue. You do not kill creatures. These creatures are fantastical. And they help you. When you subdue it, it joins your deck of cards. Right. And the quests take place in all these different lands. Now, the fourth game is one that I think you have spoken on one of the previous shows with Dr. Steve Polzing. And Steve is a uh, um, he's a biomedical engineer on the faculty of Virginia. Um, help me. Is it Virginia Tech or is it Duke? It's Virginia, Virginia Tech, Tech, right? Because right, yeah. he's in Blacksburg. Right. So he's in Blacksburg, Virginia. And Steve and the same guy I just mentioned about Fantastica, our friends, Alf Seeger, and they designed a game together called Cubist. Oh, yeah. And uh, Steve was on your show, and I think you talked about this game. But uh, this is a game where each player is an architect, and you are competing to build a museum of modern art, and your building blocks are dice. Now, again, it's called Cubist, and guess what? It's got a lot of Cubist art in it, and uh, Cubism, and about 12, I think, different Cubist artists are involved in this uh, game as well. And you're asking them for help every now and then about uh, what they can do to affect the dice and how you uh, build your Museum of Modern Art. So that's Cubist. And then the final one in this uh, group of games of art is called Rococo. It's done by a couple German designers, uh, father and son team actually, joined by a third designer. And uh, this one takes place in Louis XIV's Palace of Versailles. And get this, in case we haven't gone far enough, you are a dressmaker in the <laughs> okay. court of Louis XIV, and it's trendy to design these wonderful dresses for lavish balls that take place in the palace. Oh, so, so I'm, I'm designing dresses for women, though. Uh, no, and men, waistcoats for oh, men see, I as well. Had, I had to check it. I had to. The emperor's new clothes. For... I had to make sure. Now, we're an equal opportunity employer back in the court of Louis XIV in the late 1700s, so. For anyone out there on Kickstarter, I don't even know what to say now. It's Nico, and then there's the potpourri of his gamer's paradise that he has on Kickstarter. I don't even know what to, which link to tell you to go to. but Games of Art. Games of or, Art, okay. Games of Art or Nika. But if you can't find it there, you can go to djgrandpa.com, and we will have the links for Griffin and Eagle Games. No problem at all. Rick, thank you very much. All right, man. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samal, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. 
please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rupert.